Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone. Good morning. This is Trisha Curtis with the Petro Nerds Podcast. Welcome, everyone. Uh, the Petro Nerds Podcast, episode 40. I am honored today to have a really fantastic guest. Uh, super pumped because we are going to talk about. Um, the, we are going to talk about Europe and the energy crisis and natural gas and all of these um, very um, timely and exciting topics. Uh, my guest today is Terry Brose, um, and he ha- is a, a wealth of knowledge and a great expert in this field. Uh, today is, uh, w- before I, I let him talk and, and we jump in, I tell my guests that I always timestamp this, uh, timestamp my podcast with today is Monday, February 21st, 2022. Uh, the U.S. markets are closed, uh, but that has not stopped oil prices from edging up a smidgen. So we have WTI at 92.36, Brent at 95.05, and Nat Gas at 4.79. So today is a holiday. It's President's Day. And um, so we know there's a backdrop of that uh, Macron has basically, you know, put together a meeting between apparently Blinken uh, or the, the counterparts, Blinken and his Russian counterpart, as well as apparently Putin and and Biden. And uh, last night when I was watching the market late at night on your European Open, things looked great. It was very positive and, you know, the futures were looking good. And then um, it was sort of like, we're going to stop Putin from, uh, this discussion will stop Putin from invading. I don't necessarily think that alone will do it. Um, but that's sort of the backdrop of today. And with that, we have uh, a number of a number of things to discuss. But one of the things which is Terry did, which is awesome, was this just very recent article which tees up perfectly called dreaming isn't going to solve the energy crisis that he just put out which is fantastic i'll put a link in my show notes but without further ado terry thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you very much for inviting me absolutely um so we talked the other day and uh we probably should have just pressed record when we were talking the other day um but actually i met terry uh, virtually through uh the year uh, energy policy research foundation and the global gas center a couple weeks ago had a had a forum and i was moderating it on the european energy crisis panel and um and your comments really struck me because um they were very rational and intellectual um and i didn't i don't always feel like especially from uh, when we're talking about european energy i don't necessarily feel like those are two things that that really come into play. And there was an individual who was also uh, from the German regulatory side or German utility side. Um, and I think he was showing some charts, basically said, I don't think we'll hit this. Well, I don't think we'll hit these targets. I don't think we can, but this is what we're saying we're going to do, which I didn't really like. And when I also asked about prices in Europe, or prices in Germany being the highest in the world, which I'd love to discuss what the actual prices are, uh, he said the people were willing to pay for it and that, that you know, the, the German people had sort of accepted this and willing to pay for it. And yeah, I don't really buy that. Um, as I mentioned offline, I've been pulling up a bunch of a bunch of slides and data and, and crunching data on on recession risks and, and energy prices. And I am really uncomfortable with the level of energy prices and inflation coupled together. Um, and I guess I, I sort of want to start there with your article because um, I think it's great. And it p- puts this backdrop of, you know, this this new thing that came out with the European Commission on adding uh, adding gas and, and nuclear back in. So I'd love to, you want to start with the article a little bit and tell, tell us the, the sort of thinking behind it because you have some great lines in here, which are just fantastic, uh, which you also put in the, in, in the panel we were talking about. Um, and it gives a nice backdrop to some of these things you're thinking about. 
Yes, thank you. I mean, first of all, I mean, uh, you've mentioned prices. I mean, please keep in mind that the prices in Europe are something like $23 per million BTU for gas prices. So you can compare them easily with what you mentioned, the $4.7 on your side and, and see the difference uh, in terms of economical growth uh, potential. The, the other thing, I mean, if you transform those uh, prices in dollar per barrel equivalent, then it means that gas prices in Europe are higher than oil prices, uh, something like $135 per barrel. So uh, we are paying our gas uh, extremely expensively in uh, the last couple of months. Um, so that's, I think it's the first uh, uh, thing to keep in mind. So the second thing is, well, when you have those kind of extreme high prices, even in Europe, and I really stress this, even in Europe, we don't have a cold phase down. Uh, we are uh, having right now uh, gas to coal switching. Uh, and so therefore, uh, what we are going to see is that we are going to miss our uh, targets in terms of uh, CO2 emission. We are going to have higher CO2 emission in 2021 versus not only 2020, but uh, perhaps 2019, which I think will put a lot of stress on the policymakers in, in Brussels. And, and, and the final element, perhaps, uh, I was doing the data just uh, earlier today. I mean, we are 88% dependent on gas uh, in 2021. Those are the latest uh, GOD data, which means that we are transferring a huge amount of wealth uh, to uh, foreign producers, which means that if anything happens, we could be the first uh, into uh, a recession going forward first, and perhaps also the only one going into recession. So I think uh, the... Uh, uh, the the, the uh, sky is is not very uh, sunny on our side, and and what I was saying in this article is is very uh, very easy. I mean, let's have uh, five rational steps. One is uh, we need uh, more gas, and so therefore we need more diversification of supply. And I think we can talk about this. I mean, uh, we are right now having a, a crisis with the Russians. I mean, Russia uh, gas from accounts for 40% as a market share, and so therefore we need to uh, uh, find new suppliers. Uh, we need this security of supply, and, and so therefore we need either to uh, uh, produce more in Europe. I mean, it, this could happen in Romania, but it's, it's unlikely. I mean, we are are not very much in favor of producing our own oil and gas, which I think is, is a mistake. Uh, and so therefore, if this is a mistake, then we need a strategic partnership with other suppliers. And the other suppliers are Norway, US, and Qatar. And, and you've seen the European Commission already uh, touring Washington, D.C. and uh, Doha to try to get those extra uh, LNG supply. And, and, yeah, it's, and been a, it's been amazing how the it's been kind of amazing listening to Ursula von der Leyen last night and, and her 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 really talking up uh, U.S. gas and and U.S. partnership and that sort of that really ramping up, which is just something that, you know, during the Trump administration and in previous administrations. But I think absolutely during the Trump administration, something that was really pushed and uh, I wouldn't say poo pooed, but sort of not not talked about. And now it's uh, definitely on the forefront of getting as much U.S. natural gas as possible. True, but I think uh, she she's making uh, a first step. I wouldn't say it's it's a, it's a full travel. She's making oh, a absolutely. first step because she's realizing that she's missing right uh, right now gas. But again, if you think that we need more gas in this energy transition, then we need more supplier. Uh, more supply for on a long-term basis. And I think perhaps it's also what the gas exporting uh, forum uh, in uh, uh, happening right now uh, 
is going to right say to the Europeans. I mean, if you want more gas from Qatar, please uh, sign a long-term contract. So I think uh, we, we have to go uh, through this step by step, but you're right, uh, you're, you're right. I mean, we've recognized in Europe that uh, we needed more gas. I mean, uh, that's uh, what you were mentioning about the new taxonomy, the fact that gas and nuclear are included. And, and, and that leads me perhaps to my uh, few uh, latest points. I mean, I think uh, we, we, we need to adapt the uh, trading system in for CO2 in Europe. I mean, Europe is always saying this is a marvelous system, but at the end of the day, uh, please uh, keep in mind that only uh, a small amount of producers are paying for the CO2 emission. And, and in a capitalist world, you know that if you don't pay, you don't really care. So really, if we need to be real about CO2 emission, we need uh, to have... Uh, is there any problem? No. Okay. Uh, sorry. We need to get real about our EUETS and we need uh, to uh, really move uh, and uh, make everybody pay for their CO2, every manufacturing pay for the CO2. I mean, for example, I mean, the steel industry gets 3 billion of uh, hidden subsidies on this uh, CO2 emission in Europe. So that uh, uh, is, in fact, uh, pushing steel producers to pollute more instead of uh, pushing them to pollute less. So I think that also needs to be... Uh, fine-tune and adapt. And, and one thing which I'm really, really uh, not happy with is uh, two things. The first one is what I call magic mass. I mean, we have this idea in Europe that if it doesn't work, it doesn't the matter. Ma the, magic, the magic math is worth, worth reading the article just because it's, it's a great phrase. Because we, we, we don't rely on Excel spreadsheet. We just put whatever we want uh, in, in, in the number and the, in, 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 uh, in the file, and that's it. I mean, it doesn't need, I mean, if we want, 20, if we want zero by 2050, just put zero in 2050, and, and that's it. And uh, nobody will be there uh, in 2050 to question the spreadsheet, and everybody will be fine, except climate. So I really think really, really need to uh, ban magic math. And, and I was, in fact, uh, asking in this article uh, for everybody to be able to call on the ombudsman uh, when there is the use of magic math. And the use of magic math is done by a lot of uh, organizations, not only the EU Commission, not only the lobbyists, but a, a, lot, a lot of commission, a, a lot of organizations. And I think this is very bad uh, for uh, climate and science, because at the end of the day, it's just uh, what you would call fake news. Uh, and, and, and the last thing is, I think we need to stop this, what I call subsidy farming. I mean, we are pouring thousands, billions of euros on, on, on some kind of concept. We have no idea if this is going to work. The industry uh, is not aware of this is going to work, but they'll take the subsidy and they will run. So at the end of the day, uh, we believe that we are going to be net zero because we are going to have some biogas, we are going to have some bio whatever, uh, when this is not going to be uh, done in a material way and fast enough for this. So I really think uh, what, what I'm saying in this article, so let's be pragmatic. Let's really do this step by step. We want to be clean. We need to be clean. We need to tackle uh, climate change. And so the only way to do this is each year to measure our CO2 emission and each year to be better than the year uh, before. And on this metric, if governments were liable on this only metric, not on 2050 targets again, uh, but the commission here uh, is already failing and 
uh, I think that's a, a good indication why this commission uh, should perhaps uh, think about uh, how to correct their mistakes if they want to stay for another two years. They've been there for two years. It's half term. Well, it sounds like the midterm, uh, the midterms in the U.S., which is a whole nother topic. Um, but those are all fantastic, fantastic points and really great overview. And I apologize to the listeners and to you for not introducing you properly. So uh, Terry Bros is a, he's a professor at Sciences Po in Paris, um, and he's also an energy and climate expert. So and he does consulting and advising, similar to myself. Um, and you can already tell we're two peas in a pod on the nerd level. Um, so fits in great with with the Petronas podcast. So I apologize for that. Um, and yeah, your your comments and your summary and organization of this. It's, it's a tight, well-written article. Um, so definitely worth checking out. Um, but a couple things I want to revert back to, and that's this sort of putting in context for listeners, because I think we throw out, you know, ener- people think about energy crisis, don't know what it is, um, and the energy prices, and they know that a lot of Russian gas goes into into Europe. And, and I had Tatiana Matrova on the podcast a few weeks ago, and we talked about this in detail of what was really going on with Russia and the drawdown. And some of, you know, early on being not necessarily completely nefarious, which I'm saying every, everything now on the gas side with, with Russia and, and the EU, I think is definitely nefarious. Um, however, the what they did, you know, 2019, 2020, the demand was quite low. And as you've pointed out in the European Commission, every, the, the signaling from, from Europe and from the regulatory side is, hey, we don't want the gas. We're not really, we're, we're very anti-fossil fuels, um, which I don't like calling fossil fuels anymore. I like calling it just natural gas. But the very, we're very anti-oil, crude oil, natural gas and, and coal. And so we're moving away from it. And it did signal, um, it, it did sort of signal to everyone of, okay, well, are we going to have a home for this? I don't think that's a great excuse for Russia or Gazprom, but I do think it's a big deal when we think about the policy trickling. And when I talk to clients, I always you know, say, you know, a lot of the energy policies and the, the push that we get and, and stuff from investor pressure does originate in Europe. It frustrates the hell out of me um, because it's like the BP shell and total, you know, they make big outlandish statements to sort of pacify, you know, the European um, governments, um, whether they're going to hit the targets or not, but they say these things, you uh, I don't even know if you want to get me started on the International Energy Agency and Fatih Barol's, um, you know, his his massive change of, of everything he's talked about in the past two years, um, but their 2050 net zero strategy. And so it all sort of originates from there and then it trickles down into the U.S. And we had this big shift in the U.S., which I keep, I really, really emphasize to folks, um, especially clients and on the podcast and folks that I work with, was that we didn't have the shift in the U.S., um, in terms of climate and really the investor pressure and ESG push um, that you hear within earnings calls, even with shale independence, until January of 2021, when Biden came into office and saw, uh, uh, rejoined the Paris Climate Accords and signed the executive order on climate change. And the reason I always say that and emphasize it is because like midterms, like these two-year elections, I think the pressure um, with with whether or not it's always exactly their fault, the pressure on this is huge because oil prices have went through the roof. Um, natural gas prices are, are around five bucks and it's very serious. And so in, in you guys have, I think it, uh, the Fed had just put out the calculations and they put recently was about 20, 28 bucks in MCF in Europe, which is very, very high. And as you point out in your article on an energy equivalent basis, I mean, gas prices are or oil prices are cheaper. Um, and that's very serious. So, I mean, the fuel switching, and I don't know the exact volumes in Europe, but the fuel switching, which is a component for why we have such high oil prices, the burning of crude oil in power plants is something happening around the globe that no one wants to talk about. It's happened in the U.S. I mean, the last uh, first couple of weeks of, 
of February and end of January, we had 20% of the power provided in New England was coming from oil uh, because they it was available and they didn't have the gas. And so I think that's a that's an element of just this, this, this sort of pricing of it's very expensive. We do have this sort of fuel switching. But then there's a piece of when we mentioned the production. And, you know, I was started my career at the Energy Policy Research Foundation. And I remember studying, you know, when I was working on U.S. shale and Canadian oil sands. And of course, there was this natural, you know, people would talk about what about shale abroad? And it would be the Paris Basin, you know, in France and and all these like the, there is gas um, in Europe. It's the ability to produce it on above ground issues are a whole nother thing. But, you know, a couple things, if you if you had studied it back then in the you know 2010s and stuff and, and watching what was going on, uh, there was a country, Spain, built a lot of LNG import facilities. And so Spain is actually in a decent position. And Poland in the last couple of years has built LNG import facilities as well. And I think there's sort of a, a been talking recently of, you know, how much how much more LNG can Europe really take? Because other countries have not built out enough LNG import facilities on, I would, I would guess, on the thinking that they don't want any more natural gas and they're moving their economy away from it, which is, I would think you need some rapid fire building out of LNG import facilities. And I'm hopeful in that regard because I do think folks, we tend to work faster than a lot of people think. We're innovative and things can get done a little faster. Still, that would take a while. But Europe has the natural gas infrastructure, right? The infrastructure is in place. So you build the import facilities, this can work. And for Poland, it's a big deal to, to sort of separate themselves a bit from Russia, that dependence. And, and, um, and Spain, I mean, obviously, is just sitting sort of by itself. So I think that's really important. But it's important in this context of thinking about the EIA put out a great uh, Today in Energy last week on um, UK on the EU um, and the UK and looking at basically European... Um, the, the natural gas supply and where it comes from and showing the big stack that's co- that's coming from Russia and showing domestic production. And I think that's the s- most stark thing is if you're looking at European and UK production from 2010 to, ne- to 2020, it is just on a nice downhill slope of domestic production. And that coupled with, and the fact that actual uh, use has only declined from what, fi- just over 50 BCF a day to probably what, uh, probably 46 BCF a day. So use has not declined in tandem with that. Um, so basically, you're, you're offsetting all that with imports. And I think what's really serious about that, and something I mentioned in that that panel I was moderating, is the storage side, is that both production, because when we're hating on on, on natural gas and crude oil and, and coal so much, the idea that we might have to produce more to have it um, with the security supply, both production and storage even. Storage is not well understood and talked about. And because the UK relies so much on offshore production as a form of storage and air quotes is uh, they're kind of, they got kind of screwed in this in during the fall because they've let that production decline and that production has acted as storage. And I'd love to know your thoughts on sort of the storage and production, because I think it's really, really serious and not well sort of talked about. I mean, it's always thrown in sort of snippets and BBC talks and stuff, but not really very serious. And if the EU is so against you know, investing in fossil fuels, it's just going to be really hard. Well, we got to invest in storage. And I think that's where the tone really has to change. Yeah, yeah, two things. I mean, uh, and, and now post-Brexit, UK is, is out of, of the EU data. So when I use U, uh, EU, I use uh, it without the UK. Uh, but you're right. I mean, if you look at the composed annual growth rate of the uh, drop in uh, production in Europe, um, between since 2010, it has been uh, around eight to nine percent per annum, and this is mostly due to the closure of Groningen in the Netherlands. Uh, but you're right; I mean, uh, you can do more or less the same out of the UK, and this is why I, I was alluding earlier that uh, 
we are uh, 88% dependent on foreign uh, production. For me, uh, UK is now foreign, 88% uh, dependent on foreign production. And so therefore, we re really need to revisit our security of supply concern and uh, a strategy. And, 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 and you have, as I said, uh, two. One is to produce more uh, in, in Europe. As you stated, it's going to be impossible in France. There may be a little bit of, of option in Romania. There may be a little bit of option in, um, in Poland. Uh, I, I wouldn't think uh, in, in Germany it's possible. But again, maybe at those high prices, the, uh, the industry will start and the policymakers will start to think that perhaps it's cleaner to produce it at home. The, the other thing is uh, diversification of supplies to so bring uh, many, uh, as much supply as possible. Because interestingly enough, uh, if you sit on my side, I mean, the more suppliers you have, the more competition you have. And so therefore, at the end of the day, the cheapest you're going to get it. That, that, that's, that's where the EU Commission didn't get it. I mean, if, if you try to restrain supply and if supply isn't there, uh, then you're going to see a massive increase in prices. If you're on the other side of the equation, if you uh, make sure that uh, the producers have overinvested, then you will benefit for this extra competition. Um, and, and, and you're right. I mean, one of the success of the European Commission in the last uh, 10 years was to make this uh, grid resilient. So we, we have the grid. We have the grid. We have more or less nearly the uh, uh, LNG regas. You're right. Uh, I mean, the only country that didn't build any regas uh, facility is Germany, by the way. So it's interesting to see that Germany, which has uh, a huge coast, which is 49% uh, uh, dependent on Russian gas, uh, didn't bother to build any uh, regas capacity. Um, so that's, I think, is is uh, the, the picture. And then you're right. What can we do with this? I mean, I think Europe is blessed with a huge storage capacity. And on top of it, if you if, if you take Ukraine, which has a lot of storage uh, capacity, then we have this huge storage capacity. And And here you can do two things. You can, again, rely on magic math and think, well, everything is fine, which is unfortunately what we've done this year. I mean, we have an organization that's supposed to help policymakers and to tell them how much gas is going to be in stock at the end of summer, of each summer, for them to be able to uh, think, is uh, the winter going to be uh, with or without a problem? Interestingly, this organization, NSOG, um, uh, came out uh, last summer saying everything will be fine. Next winter, i.e. today, will be more than uh, we will have more than plenty gas. We can all go on holidays uh, uh, happy uh, because storage will be full by 90%. And again, this is exactly magic mass. They've put 90% because they wanted the reader to have 90%. Nothing more. I mean, there is no Excel spreadsheet behind. There is no rational behind. And 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 this is, by the way, paid with taxpayers' money. So I think uh, then you you can start. Uh, asking and questioning the, the, uh, what this organization is doing. So, uh, and, and we know that if our storage are 90% full, then we are providing our security of supply. Our security of supply is guaranteed. But not only this, if this is a the case, then it is very often, you, you, you mentioned Boston, it is very often an LNG cargo that has been reloaded in Europe that moves into the US. So we provide the security of supply of the whole world. And, and that has a value. So we should look at this with what is its value and how can we extract 
and and we may be in a world where yes we are not going to produce because uh, we, we we are not blessed with so much resources as as a country but we are blessed with a lot of storage capacity and so therefore we can help the us we can even help china in plain winter when we do this as long as we don't rely on magic mass and we rely on real data and unfortunately uh, storage we're not full at the end of uh, this uh, this summer and we are facing a lot of uh, storage uh, being uh, depleted very fast and so therefore we are short in storage capacity and so w- wonderful explanation and greatly appreciate that um it makes me think of, I mean, there's several different tangents. I, I have a lot of things I want to go through, but there's several different tangents I sort of want to go down. You did you did mention, you did drop uh, China, which I don't, I definitely want to get into. And I'm not, I have a bone to pick with Europe in terms of the coziness uh, with China, especially on the climate change side and the ability to sort of let China um, decide what's being done around the world and, and promote climate change uh, and, do, and do nothing about it. But that's a whole, that's kind of a separate topic. On on this storage thing, so it's one, you, ha- you have the infrastructure, you have the storage. So in theory, you could build out more LNG import facilities, increase storage, and and a- actually actually sort of be that buffer. I think there's a problem, you know, whenever prices, if if you, you know, the spring comes, we don't have an invasion of Russia into your um, into Ukraine, and I think the weather gets a little better, and natural gas is not needed. Uh, what happened, obviously, at the end of 2020 and beginning of 2021, which actually sort of started this, you know, this cascading effect, and then obviously Putin's been planning a lot of this stuff since since early 2021 as well. Is that I mean, there was a drawdown on there was a spike in demand. Um, there was a colder winter in China. There was a colder winter um, in or late sort of winter in Europe. And there was this draw in demand. So really, this sort of weather dependency, I think, is important because we all have these short-term memories and it probably incentivizes that magic math. Um, but it's that magic math is really frustrating to me because it's it's literally what people say. It's what the International Energy Agency does. And we talked about this before, but, you know, the International Energy Agency's ludicrous IEA 2050 plans when they say everyone needs to reduce natural gas demand, the globe, by 60 percent by 2030 is Bananaville. I mean, we're sort of in the, these territory that it's and the only two answers are wind and solar. And I've, I've I mean, that wind and solar, almost all of it's coming from China, which is just very convenient and extremely frustrating. It makes me concerned that, you know, Fatih Barol is, uh, I don't know exactly where every source of funding for the International Energy Agency, but I think it should be completely transparent now because I'd like to know where all the money's coming from. Um, And if he plans on getting elected in Europe, and it seems like that's the goal here, he's becoming a politician or something, because he's certainly not running an independent energy agency anymore. Um, And secondly, the, the China thing is, is important to me. Um, and the reason is, and I'm looking, I'm staring at a chart from, I, I pull BP energy data and, and, you know, throw it all in so you can see how much everybody's using for what. And I'm just looking at total European Union energy consumption. And this is for, for power only. So if we're breaking out the EU and I believe, I'm not quite sure if this is, includes UK because this is dated. So I'm guessing this includes UK um, because they hadn't split out. So this is 2020. And it's nuclear is 25%. Nat gas is 20%. Wind is is 15%. Obviously, in, in the UK and in other parts of, of Europe, crap, wind is huge. And you can see the wedge of the pie. It's really grown in the last several years. And we've talked about this before, but the EU does not, at least to my, I can't find an up-to-date monthly or quarterly or anything thing that says this is the breakout of energy use. Whereas the the UK actually has a government document that shows this energy use. And 
I they had the highest amount of renewables on the books that they've had since 2017. I think probably the highest ever, right? Keep adding lots of renewable capacity, lots of solar capacity, lots of offshore wind, lots of onshore wind, lots of renewable capacity and bio bioenergy, which is I'm pretty sure they're just burning wood um, or peat bog in Scotland. But that that's the bio side. And then in September, when the, the whole thing sort of started around the world from China um, to Europe to all over the world where um, the summer was hotter and we didn't we, we drew down on hydro or didn't have enough hydropower. And because China has so much hydropower capacity, more, more than anyone in the world, that was a problem for them. Then they drew down on the coal and then knock on effects and, and didn't have enough night gas. But for Europe, I mean, that same thing. There was actually a decent wedge of this hydro that wasn't super reliable. And, and people don't talk about that, of that, you know, there wasn't enough rain, there wasn't enough sun, and there wasn't enough wind. So that moment, I think it went from like 18% of the grid was was something of all renewables, and it went down to like 1% in, in the UK. And that's really serious because that's just weather dependent, you know, and that could... You, you can't predict that. You can't change that. So you could have all the renewables you want in the grid. But if you don't have, and this is where I really get pushed back on like, yes, we can phase all this out. No, you, you can't completely phase out. You cannot phase out natural gas and coal completely, or you will not have reliable power. Um, and somebody has to pay for it. And so these things with your magic math and the policy making is that, and according to, you know, the folks in Ger- that, that gentleman on that panel with Germany was that, well, the people are willing to pay for it. But in the UK, they're raising their electricity rates by 54%. I mean, by April, like that's, that, those are insane numbers. And 25% of their bill is already an ESG, basically an ESG tax, a social and government tax. So I think we're, we're in, you know, pretty rough territory in terms of just pricing um, and the reliability of this stuff. So, I mean, if you want to comment on that, I just, it's really, it's striking to me. And in the context of you guys have very low emissions. I mean, we're looking at Europe emissions, looking at actual oils. You don't demand that much crude oil. Your emissions are, are low. So it's, it's kind of like refiners trying to get that last little bit of, you know, of the, the parts per million that, you know, they're, they're, their pollutants that they, they brought those down significantly, you know, in the seventies, eighties and nineties. And then it was like the little, little bit, which was harder to get. It's like that little, little bit of CO2. And you're right. 2021, I think across the globe is going to be a year where we see CO2 emissions skyrocket because there was a lot of fuel switching and a lot of coal switching and a lot of oil burning. So, I mean, it just doesn't seem like you, you can talk about, everybody can talk about all the stuff that they want, but it, it's, to me, it doesn't look like it's about decarbonization. It doesn't look like it's about CO2. It looks like it's about policymaking and money. Well, I, I think if we go back to the energy transition, uh, what we all know and what you stated is we need storage and uh, there is no electricity storage. And so therefore the only storage we can get this buffer is gas storage. So let's use those gas storage. And, and, and you're right. Uh, at the end of the day, the industry may or, or might or might not uh, put gas in storage. So this is why, um, personally, I, I've written a, a few articles stating that at the end of the day, uh, the, uh, if there is, uh, I think, an interesting policy, it is to mandate uh, industry to have uh, storage full uh, at the beginning of winter, because again, we, 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 we have a neighbor that is called Russia, and we need to be in a position to mitigate any kind of risk, which was done many, many years ago. And instead of relying on magic math, let's rely on reality. If we need 90% of our storage, so let's mandate it in, in a regulation uh, or in a directive, and let's do it. It's done already in some states, uh, in France, in, 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 in Poland, uh, in Italy, it's done. And, and, and so it works. So that's uh, perhaps not uh, 
pure capitalism, but that at least allows this. And, and again, it can be uh, something that uh, where Europe can make money out. Again, uh, if we had storage full, we will be uh, the one able to sell this last cargo to Boston and, and, it, and we will no, have made no, money a, out of it. So, great comment. So, it's, it's a good, so, the buffer so think, comments are very big. Uh, so I think that, that's the first point. And then there is a question about pricing and how uh, can people cope with, with the pricing? I mean, there, there was an interview today of uh, the energy minister and the economic minister of France. Uh, he's now subsidizing all, all, all the uh, uh, power and gas in, in, in France. And he says he will do it until, uh, until price uh, recede to a normal level. So I think... Uh, what, what we are facing is with... Uh, what is the uh, normal level? When would that be? Exactly. That's at, at least after the, his uh, re-election. So that's uh, of the re-election of Macron. I think that's... that's uh, th then we will have to uh, rediscuss what the normal level is. But, but, but I think it shows you something. I mean, uh, yes... Uh, if, if you're somebody that is completely out of touch, then yes, you, you don't look at your bill. But if you're a, a normal person, you're going to look at your bill. And, and this is on TV every single day. I mean, people are fed up with, with those prices. And, and again, I think we have two things here. The first one was we stated that uh, this energy transition was going to be costly. And as you stated, when you want to get rid of the last drop, whatever the PPM or the last CO2 emission, it's going to cost you more. And we, we all knew this. I mean, uh, the, the CO2 abatement curve is nothing uh, uh, completely uh, strange. I mean, we had it uh, since uh, 2000. So we know it's around the 30, 40 uh, euro per ton of CO2 if you want to do the coal to gas switching under normal condition, i.e. when you have the gas, and it's around 100 euros per ton if you want to do uh, carbon capture and sequestration. So it's nothing new here. Uh, so the, and, and, and you rightly said, the Germans were uh, prepared to pay uh, higher prices. But then the question, and I think this goes to back to my article, I mean, it, it, is, it is okay for me to ask for the people to pay more if, if they're willing to be voted for this and they're aware. But if at the end of the day, we achieve the opposite, uh, then we have a problem. Uh, if we achieve the opposite, which is we are paying more and we are emitting more and uh, we are transferring higher wealth to uh, foreign producers, then it starts to be a problem. And, and, and this is where I, I, I disagree with what the commission has done since the, um, uh, the Green Deal. I mean, remember when this commission started in uh, end of 2019, we had just finished what was called the Energy Union. And this new commission came out and said, no, 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 this is not going to be enough. This is way not green enough. So we are going to revise the 2030 targets and we have and we are going to increase all those climate targets. It's called in Europe the Fit for 55. I mean, we've done it on a paper. We've published thousands of pages on this. But at the end of the day, the only thing that was achieved is higher prices, because I think we were the one that engineered the crisis, because we were saying to our uh, suppliers, we don't need more gas. And because we, we, are, we don't have this extra gas, we are burning more coal, which is insane. Uh, so I think this is where I think the magical math have to be stopped. Uh, and this is where a reality uh, uh, has to come against dogma. Well, and that and you explain it really well and articulate it really well. And it's lovely to think that there's a professor at SCNSPO that's, you know, has a practical mindset and knowledge. But I guess on and, and I'm not saying that the U.S., 
you can criticize this as well, but this is where I get really frustrated with, um, and I, I want to bring this into monetary policy a little bit, but I get really frustrated with energy policy in terms of th this green policy because it's on the face. It is about reducing emissions. And, you know, the EU from the outset, from the outside in analyzing the EU, it looks like the EU and most countries within it will, will sort of fall on the sword and die on the cross for CO2 emissions. I mean, anything else could happen. The world could, you know, burn around them. And this is going to be the thing that they fall on. And that has serious and lasting meaningful implications because one, I, I, I've talked about this in previous podcasts and you probably heard me on that panel, but as we pointed out, none of these things have actually reduced CO2 emissions. And it starts making me concerned that it's not about CO2 emissions. You know, that if you're going to, in the US, for example, I mean, the climate change executive order and all the infrastructure spending and all the spending, which is all contributed to you know, inflation and, and will lead us to recession, but all of it is that if you're putting shovels into the ground and you're building out infrastructure, I don't care if you're building out transmission lines or you're building, you know, um, plugins at homes or whatever, it all requires backhoes and diesel. And it all, because those backhoes are not plug-in yet, all of that, and even if it was, it all re requires energy and power and emissions will go up. So it's the question of like, we're going to see these emissions go up. And I always struggle with, you know, the people who really, you know, are, if you're really bought into this being about reducing emissions, are you... Do, are they, are they going to fudge the numbers of the as they implement the policies, the CO2 emissions rise, nothing changes, you know, and people in Colorado, you know, expect the weather to immediately change the moment, you know, the moment the CO2 emissions are, we get to net zero that, that the weather will just magically go back to some, whatever they thought it would go back to. I mean, it just is, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of sort of fiction there and a lot of fluff. And the fact that it, everything gets prioritized around CO2 emissions scares me, especially in the context of um, this very, a very serious, um, a very, very serious issue with Russia. And I think that it, it was a little frustrating to me in that panel that that wasn't talked more seriously about the elephant in the room of that. I mean, yes, that we know um, what is prioritizing in the EU, we, but energy security is, is, is vastly important, as, we, as we've sort of seen. And now it's the question of, so if you do have a Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, security of supply is sort of out the window. Can you, are you going to guarantee to get the gas? No, it, you may not get it. You may not get it in a, in a couple months. So then it's a real, yes, we got through winter, but then it's a sort of what? In addition to that, it's you know, our other countries outside of just, you know, France and Germany going to get the gas, but what's going to actually happen to, you know, other countries where, where is uh, obviously Russia will try to send uh, gas to China and, and tr Russia will send, you know, oil to China and things like that. But I mean, it really actually sort of matters of we sort of set, set it aside, you know, if there is an incursion on the border, it just means it, uh, I'd say instability in Europe, right? We already have instability within Ukraine, um, regardless of, of, you know, small incursions and stuff happening. So we have this sort of instability. And I think that folds into this sort of this concept I have of the or the not concept, I mean, high energy prices, you know, a looming war on, on the border of Ukraine um, and a potential recession, high energy prices and um, high everything prices. I mean, if looking at the inflation um, in Europe on European Central Bank's website, I mean, it's very serious. And the ECB keeps saying that it's just energy, right? And we have to look through the energy transition and it's just energy. And so we can sort of live through this. And it's not just energy. It's not just energy in the US. It's, it's across all sectors. And the reason I sort of bring this back to the Russia thing is that any 
further instability with Russia and Ukraine is going to impact supply chains even further than it more than it is now. And there's already shorter shortages and bottlenecks and everything. And this just seems like this, this, you know, is a dual crisis, which could really, you know, accelerate the potential for recession, uh, which I think is sort of on the horizon um, and on the doorstep for everyone anyway. But it, it seems very, very concerning to me. And I'm just curious outside of this, which you did an excellent job with your articles. Is that also being, are you thinking about that? Do you think policymakers are also thinking about that as well? Well, perhaps let me address those two points. I mean, the first one, can we clean it? Can we reduce CO2 emissions? Because I, I, I want to be here very pragmatic. I, I, I believe we need to do stuff. I believe innovation will help us. But again, uh, the ones that are using magic masks are in fact making us traveling the wrong direction. And I'm going to give you uh, one, uh, one example, which I believe is uh, even worse than any kind of IEA example, which is an IRENA example. I I IRENA uh, is, um, back in 2020, was telling us this is the hydrogen economy. And uh, if you look at their tweet back in 2020, they were using an For energy... Listeners, this is the International Renewable Energy Agency, just so Absolutely. folks who don't know what that is. Uh, they were using in their tweet... Uh, an LNG cargo, because there was no hydrogen cargo at this time. Okay, so that, that's the first element. That's basically completely fake news. Second mm -hmm. thing is the hydrogen that is now produced is produced from coal in Australia without carbon capture and sequestration, and this is shipped into Japan. And everybody, if you look at it, everybody tells you it's green. I mean, I'm a scientist. I know we are polluting more and I repeat, we are polluting more by doing this than shipping just coal to Japan. But mm -hmm. Australia will tell you, well, this is clean. Uh, Japan will tell you it's clean. Those CO2 emissions in, in this project will be, uh, provide, will be given to somebody else. And IRENA is uh, showing us this is a marvelous example. So that's, that's, those are the things that are happening. We are also doing the same in Europe. As I said, we have an extremely high a strategy to produce a green hydrogen in Europe uh, more than what the math allow us. And what we are going to find is, and this is, I think, um, uh, criminal for climate, we are going to find some people linking uh, their electrolyzer to the grid. And at the end of the day, uh, we are going to produce more. So I think that's really the first element. And we should make uh, policy pe people uh, accountable for this. I mean, you cannot say this is uh, a green project because this is even worse than greenwashing. So that's the first element. The second element on, on Russia. Well, I think here, again, it's our job to be prepared. We should have been prepared. Uh, we have... Uh, again, uh, uh, security of supply directive. We have a gas coordination group. We should have done our own homework. And, ex and, and again, I really stress this. Uh, if in uh, September our storage went 90% full, uh, yes, we will still have an issue with Ukraine. That's, that's a geopolitical issue. But we won't have an issue with gas. Gas prices will be higher, but not in the $23 per million BTU. So this is where I'm saying, I mean, we, we cannot rely on the Russian to help us to achieve our, our, our good wealth. I mean, we have to do it ourselves. And, and, and this goes back to security of supply. I mean, this is the theory of security of supply. You have to do your own homework. If you're sleeping or, or, or doing bug all, you're paying for this at the end of the day. And, 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 and the people that haven't done uh, should be called on, on them not doing the work. Uh, fantastic responses. Both I, I like both of those. Because um, I think the there's a project. I mean, these are... 
getting started on, on hydrogen and ammonia and everybody talks about it a lot, right? You, you make a, a great point of if it's coming from coal, I mean, it's like, is it, is it blue hydrogen? Is it all, the, all these different forms of hydrogen? And lots of it's in the test phase, but yes, it is, it is a lot of greenwashing. And, and I, I go as far as to even say, um, you know, it's lying. A lot of people, these are actual beyond fake news. It's actual lying. Um, and I, I get a little anxious when, when operators, publicly traded operators, you know, change their, their, the wording within a quarter on how they see things sort of that you obviously have the greenwashing and these projects, which are, are absolutely not um, actually not decreasing CO2 emissions. And, and even when from a security supply standpoint, even when it's importing, which is very, very frustrating from oil and natural gas perspective in the U S is that, you know, Biden has been very clear that at least up until, up until within days that he's anti U S oil production. Um, but he's okay. You know, bending sanctions on Iran to increase output. He's okay with, he was okay with Nord Stream two. He canceled Keystone XL. So as long as it's not on our board, our, our doorstep, he's okay with foreign oil and gas production being imported into the U S which 100% has a higher CO2 for, footprint beyond just CO2 footprint, because you're actually putting in tankers fueled by oil, moving it um, to the US. Beyond that, you you are, have reduced your security, you know, your, your actual security of supply, your energy independence, um, and you've changed your sort of stance in the world. And you've also, you've enabled sort of, um, I mean, problems sort of down the road, right? Because you don't have that production baked in and you're not building out storage and you're not spending money on that. And so it's this whole idea of that if we just sort of not think about it, right? We don't we don't deal with it at home. We move people away from thinking about it. And so we slowly move off. And then I guess the next goal for the administration would be to slowly curb more and more production in the US. But it's extremely frustrating for producers because everybody now keeps saying, at least from my perspective, because everybody now keeps saying in the US, well, there's not much the administration could really do to help with energy. There was quite a bit he could have done. Biden could have done actually at the beginning of his administration, and he did do. He he definitely helps fuel. Um, he definitely helped fuel inflation in the U.S. with with a lot of his policies and um, and checks that were written. But he also helped fuel a the vantage point on energy or on oil and gas production and the investment side. So when Pioneer Natural Resources is a company in Pioneer Natural Resources just had the earnings call, their big Permian Basin uh, producer, and when they had the earnings call, and I hear the the um, the CEO talking about, and he's kind of ripping on private producers, which I didn't really like. Um, but he was saying that they need to be regulated by the EPA. And I thought, well, that's a that's a little unfair because, I mean, you wouldn't have said that to yourself, you know, a few years ago. But I also think it's like so, sort of thinking that if you if you allowed the administration to do this, that they wouldn't also do it to them. That was just with methane. And, and that's a side thing. We can talk about what U.S. and other countries could do. But I, I think you're 100% right about sort of the greenwashing. But back to this is sort of security supply. That enables, I mean, if, if Europe was in a better position, to your point, they would have, uh, Russia would have less leverage, right? It wouldn't just be about, you know, because all that all that the U.S. And, and EU can say is, we'll slap sanctions on you. So the worst thing, and yes, that's bad. I mean, if you're hitting the banking system, if you're hitting the SWIFT system, you know, it, it hurts Russia. But Russia does have, uh, you know, the highest foreign currency reserves they've had in their banks in a long time. It's over $630 billion and they've got some cash. Their economy is not nearly as, um, I mean, it's not, it's not 
completely export driven the way it, it is, but not in exactly the way the, the Saudi Arabia and other major countries are. And it's just a different sort of style of economy. So they can weather this, I think, a little bit longer than people think. Um, and there just seems to be a tendency up till this very moment, you know, and up until the days, you know, folks get on TV from the White House and say, hey, war is going to happen. There just seems to be this tendency of this just won't happen, even as these troops are amassing and everything. And I think part of it is just because nobody's in the position to really do anything about it. And energy is a is a very big piece of that, of that, you know, energy and money and, and exports and everything. But Russia primarily exports energy, and that's where everybody sort of folds in. And the U.S., we still we import uh, from we still get crude oil from from Russia, which will, will be not I'm assuming that will be sanctioned and we won't be getting it. And it's much smaller volumes than you all get. But it's still very serious. Yes, I mean, you, you, you've seen, for example, or you heard very recently the Italian prime minister saying, yes, please put sanction, but on anything else except uh, energy, because uh, Italy is highly dependent on uh, uh, Russian energy. So, so yes, you, you're right. I mean, this was interdependency. And so, therefore, this was uh, uh, something we had to look into and we had to find a solution. And perhaps let, let, let me go back to the US. I mean, without... Uh, providing any comments on, on the U.S. administration, but providing comments from my side. I mean, if we now understand that this energy transition is going to need more gas, then I think there is also responsibility on the side of the U.S. Uh, the, um, we don't have this um, gas available. As I said, let's, uh, let's round it up to we are 90% dependent on, on foreign producers. Uh, which means that uh, we can either knock on the door of Russia. Uh, if we if we do this, then we will be more than 40% dependent, which is just impossible under uh, market condition. Uh, we are going to be able to knock on the door of Qatar, but we also need to knock on the door in the US. And so therefore, there is also a responsibility of the US that once uh, that is our ally uh, to produce uh, this uh, gas that we need. And, and, and I think that's also part of the policymaker setting the level uh, the level playing field because at the end of the day uh, if we continue saying where well, we don't need gas uh, the uh, banking industry will try to avoid financing it and and i think this is where policymakers should be uh, much more uh, honest and also uh, much uh, more in tune with reality and not dogma Absolutely. And I, that's that's exactly my point. And it stretches across the entire globe, not just the U.S. and it matters for you as well. But it, it is the frustrating piece because, I mean, when you hear these operators, that's what they're talking about. Right. They're saying, you know, they're, they're pandering. They, they're absolutely pandering to their investors and saying we're hitting these targets. We're lowering our CO2. We're doing everything. All that comes from a top down. And it is policy driven because, you know, Janet Yellen is a political appointee, right, in, in the in the SEC. So she is a political appointee. What she says trickles down and, and that's the investor scrutiny. When the Fed talks about climate change and when they're asked about climate change and they mention it, it feeds into how investors are thinking. It's it's very important. The 
Fed cannot even handle their mandate of 2% inflation um, and low unemployment, you know, maximum employment. They, they can't handle it. They've, they're, they're not handling it. They clearly don't want to. They're not raising rates. They're still spending money. And we have inflation at 7.5%. So it's ludicrous to me that you could think that they could handle uh, climate change. It is not ludicrous, however, that you need low interest rates in order to um, enable the energy transition. And that, I think, is really serious and that you know China, and I want to get back to, to U.S. natural gas production in just a second, but I was going through a bunch of articles last night. And, you know, I mean, China energy or EV and solar and um, green tech stocks have really backslid. I mean, they were outperforming last year, but they've really backslid. And interest rates haven't even risen yet, you know, in, in full capacity. And yet they're backsliding in anticipation of this. They know they're not going to be able to get this cheap money. And so I think it is really serious to think about, one, where the, where the new, uh, where this energy is coming from, the solar and wind, if it's coming from China, which I don't think is a, is a reliable supplier. Um, so that's a whole nother security supply topic. But also it's very important important is that monetary policy and the European Central Bank is very serious about looking through the energy transition, which means they're likely to allow interest or they're likely to allow inflation to run hot, which could have very destabilizing impacts to the economy um, because they want to enable the energy transition to happen. And I think this is very new um, and it's, it's scary. And it's something that I am really concerned that the Fed in the U.S., um, is not stating clearly. I mean, they keep saying everybody's worried that, you know, they're going to be hawkish and they're going to raise rates. Well, we have seven and a half percent inflation. We have higher levels of inflation on all energy indices than we had prior to the 2008 financial crises. I mean, if you chart this stuff, as I did all weekend, this it looks it looks so much worse than 2008. I mean, absolutely worse from a housing level, from everything. Um, and yes, we have this fiscal lag and, and everything, which all helped contribute um, all these all this fiscal monetary policy helped contribute to what we're probably going to see in this recession. But energy prices are, are really important in this because energy prices and infl- high energy prices and inflation, as I keep saying over and over in my podcast, is not something I've seen in my lifetime. It's not something we've all seen of sustained inflation and high energy prices. And that is a really awful, those are really awful things for the economy and for economic growth and for the consumer. And they eventually weigh on actual spending and behavior in addition to all these supply chain things. And it's just really, really concerning in terms of where we're going from a recessionary standpoint. So one, I, th- I think that's huge. In terms of, I'm going to back up and go back to your comment on on the US side for, for gas, because um, I, the natural gas is great in that it is a resilient molecule. I mean, at least in the US, we produce it really easily. I mean, you put... In Saudi Arabia, you can put a straw on the ground. I know I'm simplifying. This isn't true. But basically, you can put a straw on the ground and you're getting crude oil out. Um, whereas in the U.S., you know, we have to actually hydraulically fracture and we, we take some work. However, natural gas, we are, are we are fracking these wells and natural gas, though, is a smaller molecule and it's easier to produce. And what happened with this uh, when when production was shut in and then you know, U.S. production was shut in during COVID and then it came back. Yes, oil production has lagged, but natural gas production, we're nearing our basically pre-COVID level. So we're basically almost at all-time highs. For gross withdrawals, we're almost at 120 BCF a day. That's massive. I mean, the U.S. is the single largest natural gas producer in the entire world and right up with Qatar and Australia in terms of LNG exports. So meaningful and profound. And I think you're right that the role that U.S., the U.S., and I, and I know I'm being a little, you know, pro-U.S. here, but the role that the U.S. can play in terms of this additional supply, one, it's already been hugely beneficial because just as as these volumes come onto the market, you know, spot volumes and and this LNG that gets onto the market has, de- you know, impacted, you know, Russian pricing. I mean, it has impacted pricing all the globe. And it's still not a 
fully liquid and transparent market the way crude oil is. So there's a there's still room to grow into doing this. And if people think the world is sort of tapped out in how much can get on the market, I think they're wrong. Because um, if we allow, you know, if the U.S. will allow for more LNG export facilities, if Canada will allow for more LNG export facilities, all this is beneficial to the global supply in terms of security supply and, and taking away leverage from those major producers. And I mean, in the U.S., we can produce it pretty cheaply as well. So, I mean, these producers, you know, right now we're sort of nearing this $5 range. If producers could get $5, it would be heaven. You know, if we could get $5 consistently, that would be amazing. You know, over the past several years, we've looked at two and sort of $3 and you've seen the rig count really drop. What's amazing, and I, I think listeners have to really appreciate is that the rig count is still very low, right? The rig count for, for gas is still very low, has not recovered. Um, and yet production has been really resilient. And there's a couple reasons for that. And that's because it is it is this smaller molecule. We have seen pretty good, I wouldn't say necessarily productivity gains, but we have seen productivity gains in the Haynesville. We've seen a resurgence there. And when you bring in these wells on, the wells that you are bringing on the Marcellus are 16,000, 20,000 MCF a day wells. And you have this legacy production, right, in, in the Bakken and in other places when these wells get older and you hit a bubble point, you continue to produce gas, you produce less oil. But so we have this base of production that's pretty meaningful in terms of natural gas. And then when we're ramping up in the Permian, by golly, we are definitely ramping up in terms of oil everywhere these price levels, oil, oil production is coming up along with natural gas production. But we have 17 to 18 BCF a day of associated gas coming out of the Permian Basin. So I am a little bit more bullish on, on that gas production in the U.S. Um, and it, it impacts prices, but the ability for us to continue to export. And the administration here, I do think it matters because I believe you know they have legal legal mandates to basically approve LNG export facilities um, as long as they're hitting the requirements. And I believe the administration is, is sort of sort of talking about, well, it's not really needed. We don't really need to approve those because we don't need those. And that's not with, you know, how they're supposed to be doing it. Um, and so it just, you know, they haven't done a things a lot. They haven't signaled to the industry or done things that are very beneficial to the industry. So that's why I don't like it when Pioneer Natural Resources says something like EPA should go regulate those private operators because that would benefit him. But I think this administration has to, there are things that could help the market right now, today, even just saying, you could say, we are going to approve Keystone XL. No, the barrels will not flow tomorrow. We know that. Um, but it signals to the market that more supply is coming, right? And and that is security of supply. So, you know, approving Keystone XL, um, saying we're going to we're gonna look at accelerating LNG export facility approvals, um, you know, talking with Trudeau, saying, hey, can we accelerate export facility approvals in, in Canada? All this does really good things, especially it signals to the producers. I mean, we've had Joe Manchin um, actually talk about he's the only guy talking about building a pipeline out of the Marcellus. But if we were to, if, if the, you know, administration wants to say, Hey, let's look at building another pipeline out of the Marcellus to get gas to the East coast. Um, that would be huge for the Marcellus, huge. for the, All this was signal and could have a, I would say a relatively near term impact on pricing, even if it was just from traders, but it could help soften sort of that pain, um, that folks are feeling. And I know there's a lot of debate on that, but when people say that, that, uh, policymakers, can't do anything right now. I think that's a little horse crap. I mean, policymakers can do stuff because policymakers started this thing, uh, as you pointed out, about a, two years ago and a year ago. And so they have a role to play in turning the ship back around. Yes, I'd like to add two comments. I mean, the one is about geopolitics. Uh, I, I think, uh, and I did 
publish a book back, uh, in, I think, in 2012. I think what the U.S. have to understand is that uh, the gas price in Europe is uh, uh, not done by Russia alone any longer. It's done by the Absolutely. U.S. and Russia. And so, therefore, there is real geopolitics at play. And, and, and you were talking about... Uh, Russian export, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, there is this geopolitical card, and and again, I mean, we can put Russia under sanction, but there is also this element of uh, increased diversification that I think we 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 must do in Europe, and uh, the US must understand why we why we are standing on on this position. That's the first element. The second one is uh, uh, the I think the ESG, or you you, you were talking about the uh, central bank. I will talk more about the. The banking industry. The banking industry uh, ha- has moved into this idea that uh, uh, it, it needed to clean stuff or, or whatever. It's somewhere green, somewhere brown, somewhere uh, black, and 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 so for some kind again of very strange reason. I mean, uh, gas has been moved out. I mean, uh, we, we we had the nuclear power plant in in France that was supposed to be the best ESG. Uh, investment and uh, then uh, uh, bankers realized that governments, uh, the French government, could interfere and uh, uh, take uh, money out, put money in. I mean, all those things. And I think it's also the banking industry uh, that created a bit this mess by uh, wanting to reduce uh, their ability uh, to finance this directly or indirectly. And and, and this is where I think policymakers should uh, come and uh, come Absolutely. with a new message stating the IE net zero fantasy scenario uh, is uh, something that is never going to happen. Uh, uh, if, if anything, if we follow this, at the end of the day, we would burn more coal uh, and, and we would kill more people. I mean, people will die of, of uh, uh, particles and also of not being able to heat or, or, or warm themselves uh, uh, properly and, and, uh, and, and cook. Uh, and so, therefore, banks will have this uh, this element. And I think this is changing, not perhaps at the uh, level of, of some banks, but this is changing because when I speak to small uh, uh, industries, I mean, CEOs of, of uh, uh, small local industries, what they are saying to their bank is, yes, you finance me for my little plant, you finance me for my little whatever uh, uh, shop, but if I don't get uh, cheap electricity or cheap gas, I'm going to go bankrupt. So you're never going to recoup your investment. You're never going to, to recoup your, 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 the financement of your debt. So I think bank, uh, banks have to really think that uh, financing the energy uh, is very important because energy is everything in our daily life. And so if you decide not to finance something because of some very strange uh, mass, then you're going to uh, impact negatively not only the uh, energy, and we've seen this with high prices, but again, as you stated, with the recession. I mean, if there is a recession, how many of those green loans uh, that were given to uh, shops that were supposed to be bio shops or whatever uh, are going to be recouped because people are not going to be able to buy those elements? So I, so I think you, 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 you were saying policymakers, I believe policymakers were... Uh, first and foremost in having responsibility, but the need to show that the ship is turning and the need to show this to the bankers. Uh, 100%. I could not agree more. Very eloquently 
laid out. And I mean, that's basically, that has been what's happening in the U.S. And I, t- I tell people that, you know, I work with such a range of different folks, you know, from small private equity players, to tiny EMPs, to midstream service companies, you name it. And I can tell you, if I had a nickel for every time I had a conversation yeah, with two, a... Two, two minutes. Pause? Uh, yeah, pause. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that there's a, a, a few things in the U.S. and that is definitely that yeah. So, I mean, the companies that I talk to, service companies is a big one, is that small service companies and basically everyone. I mean, the beginning of last year, what happened was uh, I, I, f- I do think the banks were feeling whether or not they were told or not is the moment that when you start putting executive orders on climate change, when you start signaling and then the ESG momentum really built, obviously, over the course of 2020. And it was sort of, you know, we dropped our emissions and this is what the world could look like. And and people really harnessed this. And obviously, you know, having a, a presidential win was huge. So you had the sort of the tailwinds and everything, the wind in their sails to do this. And I, there wasn't a single company I talked to, not one, you know, in oil and gas and otherwise that were, say, you know, saying, well, we got to pivot to ESG, we got to do this. They didn't even know what it meant. You know, most of these companies truly didn't know what it actually even meant. And they would say, we got to get into green. I mean, these are oil and gas service companies selling little different components to the service and to these these. Uh, the oil and gas industry, many of them not necessarily successful or or making lots of money in what they were doing and what they knew and trying to pivot into a sector they know nothing about. And that uh, a sector, by the way, that doesn't actually make money, you know, it makes money on subsidies. But, you know, largely we're talking about battery, wind and solar and to degree batteries probably make some money. But I mean, wind and solar is not profitable unless it is highly subsidized. So, I mean, it's, it was just a very um, kind of mind-blowing situation over the course of 2020 when everyone's promoting and talking about ESG, only talking about the E, only dealing with E, not caring about the S or the G, not caring about human rights. Um, just very, very serious. And when I would talk to even private operators, private oil and gas companies backed by private equity, they had the same pressure, right? They had the same thinking of the, the PE guys were were leaning really hard into the ESG side. So they were trying to get their operators to to get in line. And, you know, I uh, to promote the podcast, I have to say this because my last one I just had um, was with Ryan Keyes with Triple Crown. And he was, we were talking about the ESG side from a private operator. And he's really emphasizing, you know, what they've done on methane, reducing methane. And I think it's really serious, but he breaks it down to the numbers. They, they did it because they there was a lot of money to be made there. And obviously, folks need to reduce their methane emissions 100%. And I grew up around the oil and gas business. And you can close hatches, you can close leaks, you can do a better job. And operators should do that. That's how they they should do that in their, their communities and everything. But it's the it's the sort of the beyond that, right? The operators do this. And what I fear is that at least in the US, these operators pander and they, they 100% are, um, you know, they're pandering to these investors, they're pandering to the administration, they're pandering to policymakers, and they need to be producing oil and gas safe rightly, environmentally, all these things need to be great. They need to be doing this because it does come, it, it matters about supply. Um, and we have this whole thing of this, this talk now of super cycle, you know, of, of it, people won't say it directly necessarily, but you obviously hear it on the market. And we have a lot of CEOs and this may not be the case, I don't know, in Europe, but we have a lot of executives and there's a group think in the industry really around this super cycle around energy prices and particularly around oil and that, you know, oil will just keep running up and running up and running up. And this is where I get into my, you know, the theory, what the basis around that is obviously, yes, pent up demand, but they think there's going to be a shortfall of investment. And I think that shortfall of investment thesis is very much driven by this near term narrative we've had on these from policymakers and the sort of banks and pressure on these companies. And that to me is more, ne- it's more near term investment that has shifted within the past 
two years as opposed to long-term investment, which I think, you know, could actually shift back. And I try to remind folks that, you know, we were not in the Paris Climate Accords in January of 2021. And then we rejoined the Paris Climate Accords in January of 2021. We could pull out of them again. And yes, Europe and the rest of the world may hate the U.S. for it, but it could be game-changing in terms of how people invest and how people think about energy. And I think you're 100% right, is there just has to be a different type of thinking. You know, there has to be a sort of come to Jesus moment or, you know, relying on, on you can't, this can't be fake math. You know, this has to be a, a reality of, you know, you have to continue to invest in this stuff. And I think we've seen, I, I heard Jason Bordoff from Columbia University on, he was getting interviewed on CNBC World late night, a couple nights ago um, at this, you know, this European energy conference in Munich. And he was saying he even has pivoted a little bit because they were harping really hard on the green side. You know, there was no room for oil and gas whatsoever. And then he sort of backtracked a little bit and said, hey, you know, if we sort of kill the golden goose, if we if we make the energy transition go too fast and it costs too much, the consumer is going to push back. And I've got news for the rest of the world. I think the consumer is already, I, I mean, we're sort of at this point, my, my electricity bill, I've noticed it. It's well over two hundred dollars a month. It's about it's about a sixty dollar increase. I mean, it's huge. I, I'm we're we're feeling inflation, and I just think all these things together, uh, the recession risk is really really big. So as much as people want to do this stuff, and I think there's ways to do it right, um, you got to thread the needle, and you gotta you gotta do it right. And it can't be it can't be the magic math or the you know um, just talking about it. It's got to be something very very real and sustainable. And uh, policymakers unfortunately are not amazing at that. Yes, I, I think it's back to what I was saying. I mean, we need to be pragmatic. Uh, we need to be able to year after year to show that we are doing stuff. As you said, uh, methane leakage needs uh, to be solved. Uh, uh, and, and, and we need to invest in uh, new technology, in carbon capture sequestration and all those things. And, and, and I think this is also good for the youth because this will create good jobs. Uh, and, 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 and I think this is where policymakers should really push instead of saying uh, in 2050 we will be net zero uh, or you won't have to uh, heat. The last one I've heard was you don't have to heat your swimming pool. I mean, I don't really care. I don't have a swimming pool. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure the, the, the person uh, providing this advice had no swimming pool himself. And, 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 and so therefore I'm, I'm a bit fed up with this list of you are not allowed to do stuff uh, because at the end of the day, uh, this is impacting the poorest people uh, yes. as the first. And, and I think we should really uh, be, uh, be, be in a position where the energy is as cheap as possible. Uh, we, as I said, we pay for CO2. Uh, and again, I mean, in Europe, we are paying today 90 euro per ton. But as I stated, uh, some do ha have it for free. So this is not a, a good system. If everybody had to pay, everybody will be uh, more inclined to uh, pollute less. That, that's, that's a trick. We, and, and we know with capitalism, we can achieve this very fast. So I, I, I really think uh, let's, let's stop having some bureaucratic system that are bound to fail and let's put something very simple. I mean, uh, what I've always said is if you have... 20 targets, you're never going to reach any of those targets. So what is our main target and how are we going to do this? If our main target is to reduce year after year the CO2 emission, we will achieve it. We just say this. We don't say we want to have minus 100% in, in, in year one. But if we say we want minus 3% per year in Europe, then we can do this. 
uh, we can do this with a system that is uh, uh, acceptable. And, and, and again, the interesting thing, I stated that I was concentrating on the EU and not on the UK any longer. The interesting uh, country or the best in class in the EU trading system, i.e. the country that has done the best in terms of CO2 emission reduction, has been the UK that left us because of this call to gas to renewable switch. So the UK has done this in a very pragmatic way, market related. And, and, and I think we should continue this. Again, deciding to close nuclear plant because we don't like nuclear in France, in Belgium or in Germany, uh, to rely more on nothing or at least uh, not what we are saying or, or, or perhaps what's not written uh, or it's written in small uh, uh, character is Russian gas is not going to be a very good for climate. I, I mean, I, I think all those points I, I like. Um, I like that you summarize and, and I know we need to wrap this up and conclude. I would disagree with the, the UK a bit because um, I think, you know, if you're looking at a grid today of what not to do, I don't want folks in the US and I don't want folks around the world. Yes, the market might have driven that, but is it listen to the BP earnings call. And I mean, they pump and talk about offshore wind and they're, th that's not completely a market. Those are, those are subsidies they're getting. I mean, offshore wind has become a, a acreage play and, you know, they're getting pressure because no one knows exactly how much they paid for that offshore acreage. And it's, it's pumped and pumped and pumped. And when you got 25% of your electricity tax being a, a being a, a, extra, you know, ESG tax, that's ludicrous. I mean, the consumers and raising your energy prices 54%, they went from 49 utility providers in the June of 2021 to having 30 of those 49 go under by January of 2022. So that's not a reliable system to me. I mean, that went under because, and those, those were energy utility providers going under left, right, and center because they couldn't cope with the situation. And when the hydro went down and the wind went down and the solar went down, they needed that they and they didn't have enough natural gas. All they had was natural gas left because they had phased out, you know, or largely phased out coal. So that to me is not a reliable system. I mean, you have to if you want renewables in the grid because you believe in that, then go do it. But it shouldn't be the the consumer should not bear the brunt of poor policy making or, or forced renewables into the grid. And I say that very strongly because in Colorado, that's what they're forcing. They're shoving it, they're accelerating the closures of all these coal-fired power plants and 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 coal-fired, I mean, com communities just completely shutting them down. They said it was going to happen in 2030. Then they changed it to 2028. Now it's 2025. And they're increasing the, our electricity bills in response, and they're shutting down these communities. And I think the repercussions are huge. And from a global scale, the CO2 emissions is nil. Um, and again, China is where you know, it, you have to break out the grid and see the coal emissions from there. So it's all for naught if you, they're not reducing their emissions. And I think that's really critical. But lastly, I want to close with this. And I have to say this because you said a uh, fossil gas. You mentioned this in, in your comments. And it's funny because in my podcast, I and I say this to people all the time, is that I really hate calling it fossil fuels or fossil energy anymore because it has such a negative, you know, there is some a very negative connotation. I said this is crude oil, natural gas, and coal. And I think people need to explain it that way because it, it really is, you know, this likening of it to tobacco, which it's not tobacco at all. You know, there's not a choice in this and, and it's not nicotine. But this is, a, so you said fossil gas in the in your comments before that um, there's a emphasis to get rid of natural the word natural and put fossil in front of it and call it fossil gas which I just think is kind of evil and a little bit ludicrous of saying to really throw the nail in the coffin of just saying how bad this is and you know that just seems like incredible pandering and push by by governments. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is, I would say, the only success of this uh, European Commission so far. I mean, they've only managed uh, in the paper uh, to uh, uh, change uh, natural gas to fossil gas. That's the only thing we've achieved, except more emissions. Uh, on, on the UK side, I was, in fact, more looking at 2016 to 2020 instead of 2020 to 2022, which is a bit uh, different. I would, uh, I, I would perhaps uh, move on your side. But again, the only thing we've achieved uh, in, uh, in, in Europe in the last two years is uh, relabeling re uh, natural gas, fossil gas. Uh, and again, um, uh, not, uh, not, not a huge success and uh, 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 something that you can call uh, a disaster if you're looking at the climate. Because at the end of the day, what we've understood for 2021 is that without gas, we are burning more coal and therefore we are polluting more. Well, with that, um, we have given these the listeners um, nearly, I mean, a, a lot of content, a lot of a lot of minutes here on oh, nearly two hours of content here. So I'm going to I'm going to close it up. I really I want to thank you for an excellent conversation. You brought a lot to the table and I appreciate that it is completely OK to, to disagree on, on some points. But um, I think you, you explain the, the EU policy side really, really well and you bring a breath of fresh air um, to it. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I uh, really look forward to the reviews for this one and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you Thank very you. much. Have a nice day. Bye. Bye.